What's going on, Creation Grounds listeners? This next episode of the Creation Grounds features somebody who I think is brilliant um, and who I think is a dope person. So I'm going to start with that um, instead of the accolades because I think that's more important. To me, this next guest, she's somebody who's rooted, she's creative, she's passionate, she's fierce, she's uh, fearless, she's a leader, um, She she's extremely down to earth. And um, her name is Dominique Morceau, and we all know her if you're in New York, if you're in L.A., Detroit, certainly if you're in Detroit, and worldwide and um, nationally and internationally. Um, if you have met her in person, you know that she's very down to earth and cool, uh, and she's joining us for this for this um, podcast. If you don't know her, um, she's an OB winner, NAACP winner. She's a top produced playwright. She's also the story editor and... Um, uh, writer on Shameless on Showtime. She's written plays like Detroit 67, Paradise Blue, Skeleton Crew, um, Pipeline, which was just at Lincoln Center Theater on Broadway, um, Sunset Baby, Night Vision, Blood at the Root, Follow Me to Nelly's, um, and all those kinds of things. And most recently, uh, which is pretty dope, she just had um, a new play at, uh, called Ain't Too Proud, at the Kennedy Center, and it actually broke box office records at the Kennedy Center, which is dope. Um, and Pipeline, her play that was just on Broadway, is actually going to be hitting movie theaters pretty soon. So all these great things are happening. She, um, in this episode, we talk about some of the upcoming projects that she has. We talk about the business of pitching um, a script. We talk about some practical tools, things that um, writers and artists can use to enhance their crafts. Uh, we, we talk about a lot in this. We talk about her daily rituals, um, who her creative inspirations are, and much, much more. So I hope that you guys enjoy this. And to Dominic Morceau, we're rooting for you. Um, you're a fearless leader. We love your work, and we wish you all the success. Enjoy this episode with Dominic Morceau. So I'm very pleased to welcome our next guest, Miss Dominic Morceau. How you doing, Dom? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, you have a lot going on right now. You're accomplishing a lot. Before we get into all that, um, let's just start with what's the first things that you usually generally do from day to day? Oh, Lord. <laughs> That changes. That changes from day to day. Uh, but I, you know, I mean, I'm not the kind of writer that gets up and writes at the top of my day. I'm the kind of writer that uh, procrastinates and um, and works out and and does emails. And I'm on the West Coast, and half my life is on the East Coast. So I, I wake up my days feeling like I'm just behind. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So I sort of try to center myself. And then get catch up to the East Coast for a little while. And then I think, you know, somewhere in the middle of my day is when I try to be able to focus on writing. And that depends on if I'm like, what's happening in my year. You know, if I'm in a production or if I'm working on in a writer's room, that's less, uh, I have less time to, to, to do those kind of things. I have to get up and go to work. But when I'm like able to be a writer, I, I get up and I try to get in the zone. You know? Understood. So we all know that you are from Detroit and you have a great history, great cultural history with Detroit. You grew up there. If you had to personify your parents and your childhood to a poem or an album, because we all know you love music, which poem or album would it be and why? Uh, you know, 
I mean, my whole life is like it, it's like Motown Christmas album. Frankly, okay, <laughs> it is my it's like my experience of my family of Detroit and like just of my childhood. You know what I mean? Like I. I grew up every Christmas listening to the Motown Christmas album. I have a real special relationship to some of the songs on there. Like, they represent different parts of my mother and my father to me. Um, and it's just like, it's what played on refrain in our house. But for some reason, like, when I'm away from Detroit, I, if, when I'm hearing Motown, but also Motown Christmas album specifically, gives me the most, like, warm and fuzzy feeling of home. Because even though my generation didn't grow up, we grew up on Motown music because our parents did, but like it's not like I listen to Motown songs in, in as heavy rotation as I listen to like New Edition. You know what right. I mean? Right, right. But, um, but when it came time for the holidays, no matter what, every single year, my soundscape was Motown music. So for me, I grew up on like a Motown holiday. That's dope. <laughs> you That's know? A and good so album. that gives me the biggest relationship to the, to the, to the, to the genre, I think. Um, and then, you know, I haven't been, haven't written about Detroit contemporarily and writing about the past. Like I got reintroduced to Motown music in a different way. I was listening to Martha and the Martha Reese and the Vandella songs, hearing them in ways I've never heard them before, you know? So it's like, you, I, it's like I keep growing up with Motown. <clears throat> It's awesome. Working on a Temptations musical, like I hear their music differently than I've ever heard it, and because the, the Temptations are my parents' favorite, you know, group ever, um, I'm more familiar with their music than I was anybody's. But uh, even now, I'm hearing it with new with new ears and new life. You know, that's awesome. So it's kind of like um, a passion project because your parents really loved it, and um, it's close to home for you with the Temptations. Yeah. You, uh, you originally went to get your BFA for acting. Uh, tell me about the yeah. day that you realized you were not just an actress, but a playwright. Well, here's the thing. I knew I was a writer since I was a kid, you know, but I thought I was writing poetry and short stories and whatnot. And in college, you know, well, in high school, I discovered George Wolf and then Suzaki Shange. Mm -hmm. And they were writing, you know, like George Wolf had written the Color Museum. It was like a vignette play. So it was a little broken from like what, you know, the normal traditional story structure. And then in Suzaki, obviously, she created the Korea poem. So for me as a poet, they, they were my way into being a playwright because um, by the time I was, you know, in my third year of college, I was just straight frustrated with the lack of studying, you know, diverse writers in our department and the lack of diverse productions or the, or the, you know, the minimal diverse productions that we would see, the minimal productions of people of color or for black productions. You know, there were no black productions, but there were sometimes productions with black students in them, but we rarely studied, you know, any plays from the black theater canon. So it was just, I was frustrated with that. And that's what sent me into, um, my third year of college realizing like, okay, I need to write something for myself and for the two other African-American girls in our department. And I think um, what happened from there is what made me realize I was a playwright. I wrote a choreo poem, you know? I was a poet writing poetry, really. <clears throat> but when I saw how people responded, how the student body responded to my work and how necessary it felt to them, that's when I realized like, oh man, I'm I'm a writer. Like, I'm a playwright. Like, I got to write plays. Yeah. <laughs> because people want to see plays and people want to see themselves. I have a way to give them something that I, no other capacity of what I do can give them what I'm doing as a playwright. You know? And so I think that's when it bit me. That's real. 
And which book or gift um, have you gifted in the past year? Which book or play? Excuse me. Oh, that is a really good question. Um, it's funny because I have I have a collection of plays. I have like August Wilson. I have Susan Laurie. I have Lynn Nottage. I have Arthur Miller. Right, and I it's my it's my personal library of plays that I have in my um, house. And so I just given little plays and little readings to my nephew and my niece when they come over. <clears throat> like little so I sort of say, Yeah, well like I, I like it's I call it my library so I loan out. Oh gosh, gotcha, <laughs> you <know>? gotcha. <laughs> like I mean you gonna check it out and you're gonna give it back. Understood. Um but but honestly so but lately I, I I gave my niece well I actually read this one to her but I read my niece Aida <laughs> um wow. um but I read the uh, the book the storybook that the opera is based on um and so and I thought at a, as I was reading to her at a certain point she was getting kind of like distressed about like the relationship between Egypt and Ethiopia and I was like dang this has really become like a different kind of story right now in this like day of immigration yeah. it was becoming like a different kind of story for a minute I was like wow this is like <laughs> I wonder what people were, how people will feel about Aida right now if it was still up on Broadway. Um, but anyway, so that's that's the latest one. It's so ironic, but that's the, that's the last one I'm gifted. Um, but I think uh, in general, I know that I've been wanting to publicly send everybody to go see Marcus Garley's work. Wow. Um, I have, I have told people about productions rather than just reading his plays, although I've pushed that too, but uh, I've been pushing Marcus Garley. Marcus Garley is kind of a legend already, but for me I've been like really promoting um, his work because it's just, it, it grabs me and he's one of my favorite writers and he now has work coming up at the you know, at New York Theatre Workshop that's in production right now and so um I, his his work has been the work I've been trying to introduce to a generation of artists that don't know him. Yeah, actually, I didn't know him before, so I, I feel, you know, kind of embarrassed to say it, but that I'm going to definitely look into him for sure. Um, oh, yeah, Marcus Garley's incredible, and his play, The House That Will Not Stand, is at New York Theater Workshop right now, and it's, I mean, it's taking, it's taking everybody by storm, and it's surprising to me um, because Marcus he's a writer like if you know me or if you know Katori or if you know Terrell um, you know Marcus has been putting it down for longer than all of us you know wow and uh, and he's been an inspiration he's put so many he's he's championed so many of us writers that kind of come along after him um, so it's sort of a crime not to I don't blame people but uh, it's just a crime of our industry that you would ever know my name before you know Marcus Garley's that's real so I'm gonna get my homework in my research and uh, talking about great writers and the upcoming writers um, I once got a question from some NYU writers uh, while I was there um, for if they're about to graduate college and they might have doubts um, with the uncertainty of the creative process and the creative life, what practical advice would you give them or any young artist that doesn't even have access to the major markets like at New York, L.A., um, Detroit, Baltimore, or Chicago? What, what practical advice would you give an up-and-coming writer to help them you know, get started today um, besides kind of just like write? Although that might just be the good advice, that might just be practical advice, just to start writing. 
I think it is, but I also think reading is the most practical. I don't think you can do one without the other. And then, and you're talking about for folks that they're not in like New York, right? You're like saying if we're in other cities that are like regional cities that aren't necessarily where where theater is happening all the time. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for that, I would say, you know, we have to be the theater and we have to create the theater where we are. And for that, I say, first, we have to read. We have to get access to theater. And theater comes through a lot of our towns. So when it comes, are you going to see it? You know, because it might be, you know, coming through the Broadway tours, but you got to go check that stuff out, you know, and and check out the stuff in your local community and take trips to go see stuff. I think that that's very imperative. If you're really trying to, 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 to be an artist and really trying to write, you know, you cannot write if you aren't reading. Um, so you really have to get the work that's in all these cities. You can, you can bring those work into your lap by reading plays. Right. And I don't know any good playwright that doesn't read plays. Awesome. Or that hasn't at some point taking on reading plays as a big passion you know right now in my in my life i don't have a lot of time to read new plays so i go see plays when i can but it's it's hard when artists ask me to read their work and it's i you know i don't want to seem like a jerk to say no but i like to be a realist like at this point if i'm doing reading i'm not doing i'm not writing right and i have so much you know or if i'm if i'm reading your work i'm not working on something because even though i'm i part of my writing process is reading is very specific reading you know if i'm working about the auto industry i'm already reading like several books and and articles and stuff on the auto industry all the time you know so i can only take in so much when i'm in that kind of a focus you know but so the best thing for me to do to support my fellow writers is not necessarily read their work it is to push opportunities their way or to expose you know them to places that they can submit their work so they can get exercise to do it um and it is also to just be a champion of opening doors for more opportunities for artists that's the best thing i can do um and so that's what i would say to my fellow artists in the region you know get out there and start reading some work and and also start submitting your work to everything that you can submit to possibly that you have the capacity to write write a cover letter for submit your work that's real uh, which character if any have you personally written that you are most, nour- most nourished by and why do the characters that you write um, with the research because I know you're having to research going to the communities that you're writing about and capturing the rhythms of the character have you grown any by, by writing a character or learned something about yourself or the community or the world um, anything like that any experience like that Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, every time I write, I learn something, you know, about myself and about the people I'm writing about, you know, which is, you know, why I write them. I think that, I mean, it doesn't make it easy. It makes it quite challenging and really scary, frankly. Um, I, I, I get really nervous when I've written about a community that I don't come from or that I, even when I say I don't come from, it doesn't necessarily mean culturally, but it might mean something else. Like that, like the auto industry is not my trade. So I'm not a part of that working community, but um, I want to learn about that working community so that I can accurately, as close as I can, reflect their truth, you know. Um, and I feel that way about anything. I, I write people, but I, I write people that I understand, but also that whose whose work or lifestyles I don't necessarily share or relate to or live in side of, you know. So I, I have to figure out, I have to learn something about them. Um, and that's terrifying. And, and 
but I always I always get a deeper understanding of myself through that kind of writing um, but you know like Faye Faye is one of my favorite characters I've ever written uh, just because of uh, who she is she's you know my character in Skeleton Crew she sort of um, is the, the matriarch and the, the tough you know take no mess type of character and I, I, I admire her and her freedom you know um, and her and her capacity to love but you know I mean I love the men in my stories you know people say about me a lot that I, I really love um, black men they can feel that in my work and that's true I do I do love black men and I love black women and I love humanity I love all people so I really try to write my characters from a place of love even if I don't like them Right, yeah, right. I love them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't necessarily like all my characters, but I love them. You know, um, and uh, and I don't necessarily write characters to be liked. Absolutely. And that really bothers me when people say stuff like, "I didn't really like that character." Like, well, maybe they don't like you neither. You know, uh, that's like, true. it's not my job. It's not my job <laughs> to make characters likable. And I specifically find it frustrating when someone says it about my black women characters. Oh yeah, because for I sure. write them like I know them, like I know them to be. And to say you don't like them, that means they didn't make you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. That's not their job. Right. So it just that doesn't mean I didn't do my job as an artist. So. um I get really, you know, I got to be really careful about how I protect the people I'm writing about because they reflect real people in the world that I care about. That's real. What would you say is the business of pitching a script? Um, if there is, what can a writer do to increase their chances of their work or vision um, inspiring a producer to pick it up? Or is there anything they could do? You know, I, I think I'm still learning how to pitch. I don't know that I'm a great expert on that, really. Um, I think what I have, I've been successful in pitching some things, some projects, or pitching myself as the right writer for a project. Um, and honestly, there's I, the tricks. I don't have tricks in my bag. I don't really have a lot of tricks. <laughs> I have, I have truth in my bag. You know, Absolutely. if something speaks to me, I can speak about it. I can speak about it with passion, and that's usually what sells me in the room. Um, when, I, but it's not just passion. I, I think about uh, how effective a storyteller I can be about something. If I really, really think I can pull something off, it's because I've thought about like where this can go—the beginning, middle, end. I see a strong structure for it, and before I go talking about it, I have a vision for the beginning, middle, end. I've written that down for myself, so I know where I'm going um, in the room. When I pitch, I take my computer in the room, and I, I. I I'm familiar with the thing that I'm pitching, but I can look back on my my computer. I look back on my screen so I can see, you know, what I'm missing or, you know, where I need to fill in. So it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of, of like any kind of public speaking, right? Like I, I have my cheat sheet and I can look back at it, but I don't want to stay glued to it. I want to look people in the eye and let them know that I, I'm, and let them feel confident that I know the story I'm trying to tell. So that's the thing I think, that's what I would impart is just um, getting clear about the story you want to tell and having your passion around that and being able to, to, to communicate effectively. That's all pitching is, is communicating your passion and your vision of a story effectively to someone else. That's real. Um, you know, and so, you know, but like you want to be able to pitch it well because you want to be able to write it well. And if you could get 
you can pitch it well. You know, that's half the battle of writing it, really. You know, you got to get through your story. Once you know the story you're trying to write and you have a clear vision of what it looks like, you can probably knock it out. Um, so, you know, so that's how I think about pitching. I don't, I don't think of it like, I don't know what other tricks people have, but I don't, I'm a, I'm a authenticity. speaker. It's, it's, right, but absolutely. I just, it's just like talking real about something I care about. That's the only way I walk into the room with anything. I don't have time to play games and uh, try to guess what you're looking for. It's like an audition, right? Like, all I got is me. I don't know what else you want. <laughs> that's right. That, that's all you, know? you need. That's all you need. That's I, all you need. And when you look at American theater, what state would you say it's in right now? What aspect do you really love? And which aspect would you love to see changed? all the voices that are getting a chance to come to the table um, in terms of like playwrights you're hearing from seeing work from I mean it begins with the playwrights so I'm excited to see more and more playwrights of diverse backgrounds get produced uh, but it don't stop with the playwrights and that's what I think is the problem right now with theater it's like okay yeah we're going to start putting all these different mixed melting pot of playwrights you know in a season if we do that sometimes we still don't do that um, but if we do that and we, 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 are, we pat ourselves on the back for putting some playwrights of color then we got to go where, where are the directors of color and what kind of work are they able to work on we got to get them you know a lot more opportunities and then when you get the directors of color that's not enough either and this is the real problem um, where's the leadership of color behind these institutions it's I think theater has a long way to go um, before it really gets like the balance right um, in terms of, of seeing people of color in leadership positions and seeing institutions change from the bottom up. Right. You know, um, and from the inside out. I, I think it's a lot, you know, and I think the biggest, another big concern I have for theaters in terms of this um, uh, lack of diversity of audience. That, that means more than we think it means. You know, it doesn't just mean like, oh, you know, this black play or this Latina play is up on stage and there's not enough Latinx community members in the audience or not enough black people in the audience. So, bummer, it's not going to be as fun. Wow. It's much bigger than that, right? Like, it, it, it impacts everything. It impacts the way that the institution is going to um, give notes about a, a writer of color's work, right? Because if they're envisioning their subscriber base, they're not envisioning black and brown folks. That's right. And so, institutional, you know, everything from the top down becomes part of, um, everything from the top down becomes part of, it, it all comes from a place of being underneath a white gaze. And we can't keep having artists of color um, be sort of squished into this white gaze. We have to make space for other gazes and other power structures to exist in our industry. Yeah. And when you think about uh, film and TV as compared to theater opportunity-wise, there's a lot happening with Netflix and all these different kind of streaming services. Which is more of a powerful medium, would you say, for diverse actors and why? Kind of do you a, mean between streaming and regular TV, which is a more powerful medium, or do you mean between TV and theater? So, so I got asked by uh, an actor friend of mine who, what, what for diverse actors, would you say that it's it's better, or there's more opportunity in film and TV, or should we be trying to galvanize theater and use that as a medium, or do both? Um, I personally think both 
are are a great option. Um, just curious to think what you would think. Yeah, I mean, when I look at myself as a storyteller, I just I look at like all of the realms of storytelling. I will say this: it will be a real tragedy, and I, I think not just a tragedy to theater, but a tragedy socially for um, artists of color to abandon theater for TV and film. Yeah, that's not something I'm interested in doing. I, I think theater is the is the is the foundation. It's got to be the foundation. And so I would tell every artist, artists of color, you know, not to just run to TV and film. First of all, everybody I know, all the actors that I know and writers in TV and film, we keep running back to theater because um, substantively, you're not going to get the, the kind of substance you get in theater anywhere. Absolutely. You're just not going to get it. And if you really love acting, you're just not going to get a chance to do all the things you could do with your instrument. Um, as a uh, in TV and film that you can in theater, and if you really, really love—I mean, if you really have an instrument, you should play that sucker till there's no notes left to play. So that you got to play it in all the ways that you have it uh, available to you. And theater is a big part of like where you can really exercise your instrument. So I don't even understand an artist, frankly, <laughs> that doesn't want to um, play their full instrument. Uh, but to, but in that capacity, I think definitely TV and film has opened up a lot of um, range for artists of color. And I think that I, w I would never tell a theater artist not to dabble in TV and film. I think we must. But I think we must be present in all forms. Absolutely. Um, because nothing is as immediate and as urgent as and as in your lap as theater. You, there's no way. It's like, it's like do you want to be a... You know, you can't parent somebody from the phone. Call, right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you can't really have a, a meaningful relationship with the community yeah. that never really sees you outside of Twitter. Like, you, you can't have a meaningful relationship with those kind of people. And if you really care about the people that you um, that your art is in front of, then you you, you got to get live and in their faces sometimes. That's incredible. Um, you know, but you can reach more people in another kind of way on TV and film. That's why I would say that there's there's a balance to the to the to the craft that I think both of those or all three of those mediums provide when you use them in tandem, when you don't just abandon one for the other. And what, what how, how would you well if there was a if there if you had a billboard in Times Square and it's um, just for you, what would you want artists in your community to know that would help them help themselves as well? If it was just a word or a phrase in Times Square. <sighs> You know, I've, I've toyed with different ones of this. You know, I had one that I don't have anymore. I, for, for now, um, I think that, because this could change tomorrow, you know, I yeah. shouldn't say that. Uh, but for now, the biggest thing for me is um, remembering, remember the why. Remember the W-H-Y. Uh, because none of us gets into this, I don't think, um, when you first started, you first fell in love with a play or you first fell in love with acting, like what was the, why, why did you want to pursue this in the first place? You know, and if you don't have a, a, a good answer for that, you should think about that. <laughs> you yeah, know, but if you have some kind of like, that is like the guiding principle of your life type of answer, then don't get away from that yeah. when you start doing this work, you know, because it's going to sometimes we get pulled away from, it, but you got to return to the why. And I say that because 
when you get away from the why, you start doing your art for the things that don't have, that don't pay, uh, that don't give you the soul feeling that you need, right? Like you start doing it for the accolades or for the prestige or for the money and all of that stuff, you know, if you like that, that's good, you know, um, and we need money, so that's good. But if you're doing it for that and you've forgotten the why, it's gonna, it's gonna crush you. Right. It's crush your soul. You know, um, my husband says it was something recent where we saw if you live, if you live for compliments, you will die by criticism. Wow. That's powerful. You know? That's dope. And that's what you, it, that's what I, I think is the scary fate of a lot of artists is what are you, what are you living for? Are you live, are you in this to get clapped for and, and, and patted on the back and given awards? Or are you in this because when you are sitting at that table and you were talking about that role or you are in the middle of rehearsal, you're doing those lines, you feel fulfilled as a human being. You feel like you are carrying something purposeful forward. And if that's the thing that you really are itched by, that's the thing you got to keep inside you when all the other stuff starts coming your way. Um, so I just say, remember the why would be my billboard. Awesome. Uh, tell us about your project that you're working on now and um, what we can expect from you in the future with uh, Temptations. Uh, so, well, Antiproud is about to open out here at the Amundsen in L.A. Um, at the end of the month. And then we're going to go to Toronto after that. And then we're uh, planning to move in to New York. Um, and so I can't wait for all those cities to see it, but I especially can't wait for um the places that I live, which is LA and New York, uh, to see the play. You know, so um, I'm excited about that. Uh, you know, I'm in residence at the Signature Theater, so I have two more plays. Paradise Blue was the first of three that I'm doing there. And um, so I have two more new plays that I'm gonna be able to bring to the stage in New York that I'm really excited about. Um, and I have a few other productions of plays that I'm working on. Uh, and another musical. So I have some stuff in the fire that I'm, I'm excited about working for. I'm also just excited about the work of my peers. There are a lot of fellow playwrights, Terrell, Coleman, Katori, you know, like I said, Marcus, um, Wada, Jocelyn Beale. There's so many artists who are uh, working in both TV, film, and, and theater who are, you know, a lot of playwrights are using their plays and then they're turning them into like TV series and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm excited about seeing the work that we're all um, bringing to the table and this like little renaissance that we're in um, and kind of keeping it going for longer than the last renaissance. <laughs> right. And the last question, um, I ask all my guests this. When you think of the word creative, who is the first artist that comes to mind and why? Uh, Stevie Wonder. I Stevie don't know, Wonder? That's just the first one that comes that's, to mind. That's real. Um, I mean, Stevie Wonder, because I just love him and he's like, you know, a, a just divine person and human being. Um, but humanitarianism, he's, he's creative. He's, his songwriting to me has just blown me away. Um, his producing and his writing for other artists. I think that maybe he's the first one that comes to my mind. Maybe also because he is my creative inspiration. You know, like his music begets other kinds of creative artistic expressions, right? Um, and there's just something about the blindness and being able to see so deeply into humanity that just, that that's a highly heightened creative soul. Yeah. Well, Dominique, you are amazing. You're a beacon of light 
for playwrights, for um, the artistry. I just love your authenticity, and I love your down-to-earthness, and I love your passion. So I want to, um, you know, thank you for coming on, and thank you for sharing your time, and wish you all the, all the more success with everything that you're doing. Oh, man, thank you. Thank you for those kind words, and thank you for having me on this. I appreciate you for giving artists a platform, and, and let's do it again. Let's do it. All right. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye, Bye.